Welcome to the Vietnam Rising Podcast, where we have a discussion with the shakers and movers individuals in Vietnam about the opportunities in the business scene. I am your host, Minh Tham, and let's tune in to catch the inspiring stories, business opportunities, and how to navigate your way in this rising economy. Hello, everybody. Welcome to Vietnam Rising Podcast where we share with you about great entrepreneur stories in Vietnam. Today, we will discover a topic that is often overlooked, hiring people with disability in your workforce or to house this, the HR scenes in Vietnam in general. 70% of Vietnam's populations are people with certain types of disabilities. They are often mistaken for inabilities, but there are employers and companies who could prove otherwise. People with disability are as capable as anyone doing highly expertise jobs. Today, we're going to, share, going to share an inspiring story from a company that employs computing experts with disabilities. Joining with me today is the CEO, founder of Enable Code, Colin Blackwell. Colin and Enable Code has made the name to the World Bank Global Impact Portfolio a group of 40 diverse and high potential youth employment projects around the world. He is also the chairman of Vietnam Business Forum HR Group and the founder of Vietnam HR Association. Hello, Colin. Welcome to the show. Thank you. All right. Welcome. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for joining us today. Would you like to introduce about yourself more to the audience? Certainly, yes. So I came to Vietnam a very long time ago. Um, I often get asked by young people here in Vietnam how long I've been in Vietnam, and uh, my usual reply is longer than them. So I was first here in uh, 1995. Wow. And I was basically the first person here in human resources. So I was was with uh, PwC back then. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the early things I did, apart from setting up the first um, employment agency, salary surveys and things like that in Vietnam. I also founded the um, Human Resource uh, Club of Vietnam. Um, It started as just the first HR managers all coming to my office um, every two weeks. And uh, now that's uh, a much bigger organization. I sometimes go to their conferences and I see, you know, like a thousand people in the room. And I always smile to myself just thinking, you know, what it was. It was just like 10 people when I first started it. Um, So yes, I have a very long history of uh, HR here in Vietnam. Um, I was here five years the first time and then um, I was back in uh, Europe for a while where I was um, running uh, global HR functions for big multinational companies. Um, But then about 10 years ago, I decided to come back to Vietnam. Um, It's uh, Vietnam always has a certain appeal. I think a lot of people do come back here and um, Mm -hmm. I, I made the right decision to do that. So I had uh, climbed the corporate ladder, as it were, and uh, wanted to do something a little bit with my own business, um, and especially to um, give back a little bit to society and do something for the general good. I see. Uh, is that why you started EnableCo? Yes, certainly. Um, I mean, the idea for Enable Code came up actually with my um, original World Bank work with the Vietnam Business Forum. So that's all of the um, chambers of commerce like AmCham, EuroCham, the Japanese, Koreans together. 
and um, we're one voice to the government, um, giving our recommendations from the private sector to national policy. Um, but that involves quite a lot of um, the planning with the World Bank and understanding their view of how economies develop. Um, and in Vietnam, when I first arrived here, there was 60% poverty. Um, so, you know, things, you could see they had potential, but most people were poor. Now, poverty has been eliminated in Vietnam. Um, but as Vietnam became a middle-income country last year, um, one thing that the World Bank was saying was that um, you then have to target assistance to people who've been left behind as poverty was eliminated. And I was thinking about that and looking at who was the biggest group of people who had been left behind, and it is people with disabilities. Um, so the disability incidence rate in Vietnam is one of the highest in the world. So there's, uh, it's difficult to get the exact number, but there's probably about 8 million people with disabilities in Vietnam. And the yeah. employment rate for them is quite low, which results in uh, poverty and exclusion. So whilst there's some great charities obviously giving very necessary assistance to them, what is really needed is that they're sustainable, that they can have their own jobs where possible. I see. And what are the works that your, um, that your staff's doing at EnableCo? This is a software company, right? Yes. Um, so in other countries, um, let's say in England or America, the very typical work that someone with a physical disability does is um, software. Because if you think about it, um, if you've got a physical disability, physical labor is the most inappropriate thing. So, you know, if the job involves physical strength or working with your hands and you've got a physical disability, you're not going to, you know, do very well at that work typically. Um, so, um, unfortunately, a lot of the work creation in Vietnam for people with disabilities is at the very low end of the market, which is mm -hmm. typically physical labor. Mm -hmm. But um, what I wanted to do was to prove that um, this could also work in Vietnam where um, these high-skilled technology jobs could also create opportunity for Vietnamese with disabilities. Mm. And that's one thing I learned quite early on, actually, with the uh, Vietnam Business Forum, is you can't simply say something like, oh, in England, we do it this way, because that's not a good comparison. It's a very different country. Mm -hmm. um, so I have a theory that it would work in Vietnam as well, but I have to prove it. You know, people are very pragmatic here. Um, very practical. So um, us um, Westerners are very often accused, quite rightly, of being, you know, idealistic and um, theoretical, saying, you know, sort of, uh, we think this will be okay. Whereas in this part of the world, people say, well, prove it, which is perfectly reasonable. So Enable Code really was a pilot project to prove that Vietnamese with disabilities could do this high-skill work. And it's a massive uh, challenge because um, when you have millions of people who aren't included in the workforce, if the solution was simple, it would have been fixed years ago. Um, so it's taking on a particularly difficult challenge. But if anyone's going to take this on, um, and it's a mixture of technology and human resources, but mainly a human resources challenge, so, in my view, this was probably the most difficult human resource challenge imaginable in Vietnam. Ah. And as, I suppose, the original HR person here in Vietnam, um, 
uh, I'd have a better chance of maybe solving it than other people would. So in a way, um, it's my responsibility to help those others if I can solve that problem. What is the specific HR challenge that you face when you do when you create enable code? I'm assuming it's the mindset, the training that you have to put into to invest to those um, talents, right? Yes. So um, a lot of it is around mindset. So um, this comes down a little bit to Vietnamese culture as well. So in Vietnam, people are very caring, they're very friendly and family orientated, which is great in so many ways. But when it comes to helping a, a disabled person, they'll automatically assume that person is a dependent. They mm. need your help. So the good thing to do is help them. So for example, before when I'd go down the street with you know, a colleague who's in a wheelchair, and we come across some steps. You could just ask anyone in Vietnam to help you lift the wheelchair up. You couldn't do that in England. So that's the good side of them caring and helping like that. But also the downside of that is that they'd overprotect. Mm. So they would say a disabled person needs our support and protection. So you wouldn't send them to school because that'd be unfair because they wouldn't be able to get a job anyway because you have to look after them and then that becomes a little bit self-fulfilling because the person hasn't gone to school they can't get a job and because they don't have a job you say hey look therefore disabled people can't get work and um, so to break out of a cultural cycle um, it can only be done positively and like i said the way to do that in vietnam is to prove that's possible so get a few success stories and publicize that and then other people can follow it. And what it does create is an economic reason to do something. That's another part of the very pragmatic nature of Vietnamese. If mm. there's an economic reason to do something, they'll do it. Mm. So if, for example, a family has a child with a disability and they've kind of given up on the hope of you know, that child being able to look after themselves, but then they see an example of a person with a disability actually earning good money, they'd be like, oh, okay, mm -hmm. that, that is something useful, yeah. you know, um, should go to school, there is hope, and encourage mm -hmm. them that way. And of course, something like a cultural shift, this is generational, this mm -hmm. can't be solved in five minutes, but you have to start somewhere. Um, mm -hmm. And Enable Code was my attempt just to try and start it. And, you know, again, a solution for something like this can't be achieved immediately. And this is why we have this World Bank Group. We have um, in other parts of the world, in Africa and South America and India, and many places, companies trying to do similar kinds of things and all slightly different approaches. But all of us, it's very difficult because you're trying to meet a social objective and a business objective at the same time. Mm -hmm. So we all agree to share information under the World Bank. Mm. Um, so we have these regular global conference calls or mm. I go over there for meetings as well. And we'll just share experiences. So I was over in um, America earlier this year before the, the flight travel ban. Yeah. Um, and um, I met someone from Kenya there. And her company had done almost exactly the same as I'd done here in Vietnam and learned exactly the same lesson. And I said to her, you know, sort of, if we'd met two, three years ago, we would have saved each other a lot of time. Yes. Um, but you have to go through this. And I'm getting, every time we try a different variation, we're getting a little bit closer. 
And also what's happening is the technology is changing. So if you're working in software, as you know as well, yeah. um, technology base is moving, which is a very big risk and threat for a lot of people, but also opportunity for others. Mm. So previously, if you wanted to get a, let's say a programmer job, it was very intensive that you, how to learn it, you know, taking you years, and you'd have to have the money, the uh, mobility, the opportunity to go to university to study it. But now, uh, there's a lot of the very modern programs like Python. You can learn it for free in the afternoon if you really want to. Mm. So this suddenly opens up the opportunity. So if there was a person who was disadvantaged or with a disability mm. and they really wanted to get ahead, they could suddenly jump ahead just as well as someone who spent years in university. So it's, um, it levels the playing field quite a lot. Yeah. But you've still got, um, the person could get the technical skills, but there's a lot of psychological, us humans are a lot more complex mm. um, than just having some technical skills. Mm -hmm. And one of the main challenges for people with disabilities is confidence. So mm -hmm. if we've been trying to protect you all the time, and um, trying to shield you from things or assuming that you couldn't contribute, of course, that's going to leave um, you know, a psychological imprint on you. So then when you do get an opportunity, you're going to hesitate. It's like, yeah. can I really do this? Yeah. Um, so if you, you know, very often in talking with a Vietnamese person with a disability, I'd see they had the capability to do something I try and push them, say, come on, you can do this. Why don't you do that more difficult task? You'd get more money. And they would hesitate and say, no, just give them more time. You know, they'll get to it at their own pace. But, you know, they've got to build themselves up to it. Mm. Um, so after a bit of experimentation and with the new technology available, what I've found is a very good starting point is um, this kind of business process outsourcing and machine learning. Mm. So these... Um, basically what that is, it's um, what used to be data entry some years ago um, has now been replaced by artificial intelligence automation. Yeah. So routine task or, you know, reading handwriting or something like that can mm. mostly be done by an AI. Mm. But where the AI gets stuck, it needs purely human skills um, to kind of figure it out. And um, with that, um, we need people who are good at being people. It sounds mm. funny, but it, it's um, these human skills, they're like often called common sense or something mm. like that. Yes. And it's, in any country, it's not common. Mm. Um, so um, these kind of tasks that an AI can't do will take things like empathy, um, lateral thinking, problem solving, um, a bunch of these skills, which you don't learn typically in the education system. So again, it's an opportunity, it's a great leveler. And for a, a person with a disability in Vietnam, if they can get their head around that, there's quite a good career in it. Um, yeah. So what we're doing at the moment is we go to um, a bunch of different charities here in Vietnam Mm. And the charities, they're doing great work as it is. They have to, you know, give the basic rehabilitation, um, uh, you know, feeding, um, medical assistance, 
um, shelter for people with disabilities, especially mm. children, um, and the basic literacy and training. But while that's great, um, you know, a disabled person would um, have many years ahead of them and need something sustainable, not just for income, but also purpose in life, you know, yes. to have a job to do, to be valued and to be able to give back to society. So yes. they're, they're, of course they want to do that as well, just like we do. Um, and this kind of work um, is then a very good entry point for that. So the work is all done from home, which also mm. is great for someone with dis disability. Mm -hmm. When we first started Enable Code, you know, I came from a corporate background and what you do in a corporate world is you all come into the office. I mean, of course you do. Yeah. Um, but then when I, I did that for some time with, um, with the staff, the people with disabilities, and in some ways it was good, it was quite social, but it's a real struggle for people to get into the office because, yeah. you know, sometimes a two hour commute. Yeah. And then, you know, you've got to be helping, lifting people out the car into a yeah. wheelchair. <laughs> so the logistics is time consuming. Yeah, but it's also, I mean, it's difficult for us, but it's even more difficult for them. Mm -hmm. And yes. we start to question, you know, why are we dragging them into the office? You know, um, mm -hmm. and uh, we started giving the option, do people want to work from home? Mm -hmm. And when we started giving the option, everyone wants to work from home. Mm -hmm. Because if you have a mobility disability, it is difficult in so many ways yeah. to come into an office. Um, and one of the examples, we work with... Um, one very nice charity called Maison Chance here in, mm. um, in Hutchman City. And they had um, a number of different uh, disability shelters here in the city, but they built a massive one out in uh, Dak Nong, um, mm. up in the central islands, because it's a lot uh, more cost effective to look after people there. Mm. And a number of the people who were working for us on projects moved up to Dak Nong, and they're still working for us from there. Mm. Um, so as soon as people, you know, are at the other end of a computer, it doesn't matter if they're down on the road mm -hmm. or in a different part of Vietnam or even a different country. Mm -hmm. um, so we were learning these kind of things as we went along as well. And mm -hmm. the good kind of, the good thing with this kind of work as well is it's self-paced. So they get tested to see if they can do this kind of human thinking. Yeah. And then they're working with an artificial intelligence and the AI is giving them images or documents to process, and they get paid only for the number of actual successful work they do. Mm. So if they only want to work a little bit, uh, or if they want to work um, whatever hours they want, this mm -hmm. is flexible for them to do. It mm -hmm. isn't like nine to five. So in so many ways, it's ideal kind of work. So the first time we tried Enable Code, we were trying for programming, which was mm. maybe a little bit too ambitious, and the technology changed anyway. Yeah. Um, what we're doing with artificial intelligence is a much um, more reliable starting point because as soon as someone has understood uh, patience, mm. um, uh, persistence, results focus, lateral thinking, once they've got the foundation of that, they can do loads of other things in the future as well. But mm -hmm. you have to start there. That's, that's really great. Then how do you... If, how do you keep your employees motivated in doing the jobs? Yeah, that's one of the main challenges. Um, and we're experimenting with that as well. 
and so we've tried you know mentoring people explaining things to them mm -hmm. so one of the ones that uh, you get unexpected challenges in this mm -hmm. so one of the early challenges we had was someone would come on um, to the system they pass the test they were capable of doing the work but they do one day's work and at the end of the day it says okay you're going to be paid this much for that day's work and they say mm. well, that's not very much money mm. um, and mm. give up and i'm like well wait a sec you got to do if you get if you do two days work then you get paid for two days or three days work and it would add up i mean the good people can get 10 million 20 million dollars a month yeah um and but people didn't understand that so you got you've then got to experiment with how you're going to motivate or explain that mm. so i was trying to put it into context so i'd say to them for example you know tell me about your other family members and what work they do so one of them would say oh you know uh, my uncle's a rice farmer and i'd say well if you if he only made one sack of rice a year is that enough no he has to do thousands yeah. uh, and then they'd say oh yeah my sister works in a coffee shop and I said, well, how, if that coffee shop only made one cup of coffee a day, is that enough? No, they have to be selling it all day long. And maybe a brother works in a, in a shop, you know, if the shop sold one thing, would it be enough? So I say to them, I'm not asking you to do anything different from everybody else you know. Mm. You've got to stick at it and do work and then you get paid. Mm. But, um, and then I try and find different ways to explain the same thing um and experimenting with different things like the, the one i'm just trying to set up at the moment is using zoom mm -hmm. um because a lot of the um the people working for us i've never met them and they've never met each other but mm -hmm. how do you get the community or team spirit going yeah i'm thinking of doing uh, virtual office parties mm. I, um, I have I have experienced that with uh, I have seen multiple groups that are doing that and I think it's also a very good way to bond people even though you can't yes. see each other. Uh, mm -hmm. Yeah because often Zoom is uh, very much a, a one-way communication or you have everybody on one panel but the trick is that I experiment I did this with the uh, Eurocham presentation recently is um, if you set everybody to administrator and then to breakout rooms people can literally move from one little group discussion to another and meet new people and have oh. these little spontaneous chats with people that, that you know, it's the kind of human interaction that people would want, especially if you're sitting at home all day working. Yeah. So you know, I'll give that a try, see if that works. Um, mm -hmm. I was also within that, I was thinking of doing, you know, maybe I could do uh, prizes um, at every one of those parties for mm -hmm. the best performer and give them some grab food vouchers or something, you know. So yeah. there are loads of, you know, one thing of working with artificial intelligence or what AIs have taught me is we don't know all the answers, but you try things and see where the data leads you. Mm. So um, in doing something like this, it, it's something new that I can't copy someone else. Um, mm. And I just got to experiment with it, see what works. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. So for the audience out there who also have hiring, um, you know, people with, who wants to hire people with disabilities into their team, what is the ways that they can make them feel, belong or accommodate into the company culture? 
Yeah, I mean, I often get asked by companies to say, you know, um, could they take on a few people with disabilities? And the first thing they think of is the physical environment, you know, adaptive technology, and they'll measure the door and say, oh, a wheelchair could fit through here. Mm. But that's the least of the complication. Um, it's actually, you know, if you um, had just one disabled person come into your company, um, it's... it's it's not just the physical surroundings, but it's also uh, the psychological adaptation of that person and their colleagues. Um, and um, it's not that easy. Um, and what I found as well, just bringing someone into the office, mm. it's often difficult for them for a number of reasons. Mm. Um, so having someone as a remote worker is actually better. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, um, when we're doing the work with the artificial intelligence, the work is being assigned by the AI and mm. their performance has been checked by algorithms. Mm. And the AI has no concept if they're disabled or not. It just knows how good their performance is. Mm. And that's an entirely fair and non-discriminatory system, which yes. is perfect in that way. Mm -hmm. Um, so, to make an impact to create employment for lots of people with disabilities, of course I would say this, is um, outsource work to someone like us mm -hmm. and then let it be our problem because mm. we can then be the experts in mm. how to uh, genuinely create employment there and um, uh, you know, adapt our own working systems to what makes them feel most comfortable. Um, because if the company just tries to do that for one person, it's possible, yes, of course, but it's quite difficult. And the mm. HR department for a start would be asking, okay, what do we need to do? Yeah. Um, yes, it can work, but um, it's going to be quite limited, the impact of that. Whereas mm. something like what I'm doing, you know, you're trying to get millions of people at the end of the day into work. Yeah. And you need something really scalable. And mm. also it has to be genuinely sustainable. So mm. they have to be really doing work that has value. So yeah. a lot of time, um, there are companies who will take on people with disabilities mm. and they, they rely mostly still on charity as mm. a business model, which yeah. is still doing something good. I mean, charities are still needed. Yeah. But also a new one of a social enterprise, which is genuinely self-sustaining. Mm. Yeah. Um, also going to be then a genuinely more self-sustaining um, mm. alternative for the person with a disability. Yeah. Because often you're so young and I say to them, look, you're going to be working for another 40 years. You know, mm. how are you going to look after yourself? And um, there's sometimes, unfortunately, with some people with disabilities, a dependency mindset because mm -hmm. they've been helped in the past. They're still hoping, and this is a very human thing to do, you'd hope that people would help you still in the future. Yeah. So for example, with you or me, um, mm -hmm. we feel the same way. If someone had given us something for nothing before, yeah. and then you have to work for a living, you'd be like, well, I quite enjoyed getting that something for <laughs> nothing before. Is that yeah. still on the menu? And yeah. a lot of the charities are children's charities, and of course you must help a child. Mm. But when a person with a disability is fully capable and an adult, then, you know, they should be able to help themselves and even other people. But yeah. it depends on the person 
personality. I mean, that's just like the rest of us. There are so many different personalities, motivations. People are complex things, you know? Yeah. Uh, so it's all about the mindset for yes. a person with disability to decide if they would rather to join a workforce and be as productive and as, uh, as resourceful as anyone else, or they can choose different you know, options out there. Yes. And, and then, of them and then for enterprise, it's important for you to balance between, you know, helping and being a social enterprise, but also, you know, sustainable and staying profitable as well. Yes. So this is also another challenge for um, social enterprises. So running a business is very difficult in the first place, you know, to compete yeah. out there in the market and, you know, make a profit and all these things. It's, it's difficult at the best of times, as any startup will know. Yes. Um, but if you put on top of that a social mission, it's more than double difficult. Yes. Um, so um, a lot of social enterprises really, you know, it's very difficult for them. But this is where I come up a little bit with a ecosystem model. Hmm. So um, you don't try and reinvent the wheel. And if, if someone's already doing something well, you let them do it and leverage that into what you're trying to achieve. Yeah. So the charities, they already do very good work. So I don't try and copy what they do or go into their territory. Mm -hmm. Then similar for, um, we, we've teamed up with a big um, uh, software company and they're very good at the software and building the AI. I don't have the resources to buy an AI and run it, but yeah. they're very good at doing it. So I don't need to you know, try and reinvent that. What I need to do is be the bridge between the charity and the software company. So uh, the software company will do the work at quality for the client anyway. And mm -hmm. at the end of the day, a client, they need a service. Yes, they appreciate your social mission, but if you can't deliver the quality, they, they can't help you. Yes. So when I'm teamed up with a very good quality uh, software company, they can do this anyway, so the client doesn't have to worry about, you know, the quality of the service and mm -hmm. happily signing contracts at 99.8%, 99.9% efficiency. Mm -hmm. And we can do that. Mm. But as an option, we're putting in people with disabilities. So mm -hmm. on the most recent project, you know, we're putting in about 50 people, mm. but there are a thousand people in the software company. Mm. So it'll help those 50 people but if for some reason they cannot do it, the work will get done anyway. So it's creating an opportunity. Um, so you aren't risking the quality of the project. You're still being yeah. a, a capability-led business, which mm. is important. So you get the business part right by leveraging someone who you know can do that. Mm. You get the social part right by having partners who you know are very good at doing that. And yeah. then there are two very different worlds out there. There's the corporate world and the charity world. Mm. And they operate in quite different ways. But what we try and do is sit somewhere in between those and understanding both of them and trying to bridge it. So mm. we try and get people, beneficiaries of charities, and with our relationships then with the corporate sector, getting them genuinely sustainable work. I see. That is a very good model. Uh, how long have you guys experienced with this uh, model? Well, this is, uh, like I said, learning as we go. Mm -hmm. So um, with, a, with a challenge this large, 
you know you aren't going to get the answer the first go. Yeah. But you try this way, you try that way, and you keep on trying. And the same with the other members of Global Impact Portfolio. They're all doing the same. Um, and it's trial and error, of course. So we have a long list of things we know don't work, which we've mm -hmm. learned the hard way. Um, yeah. But that's necessary, otherwise we wouldn't know. Um, but we get, we're getting closer to this now. Mm -hmm. um, so the good thing with business process outsourcing work is it's very clearly measurable and it's low mm. risk as well because yeah. you know um, if they can do some work successfully they benefit we benefit if they mm. can't no one loses either because yeah. it's you know on a kind of a freelance basis um, so and then we because the BPO work is very precise the way you're working with an artificial intelligence you can exactly measure someone's performance down mm. to the keystroke if you're paying them per document processed. Ah. So then we can start seeing what interventions do work. So for example, the upcoming um, virtual office party, you know, mm -hmm. I could see on my database, we've got about 500 people on the database. I could see which ones have joined the party and then I could watch, does their performance change before and after, for example. Um, so I could, you know, offer an online training course and maybe 20 people take it and I'll see, does their performance change after that? If mm -hmm. it doesn't, at least I'll know. If it does, I'd do more of it. Yeah. So, you know, I'm always just trying to think of ways. I mean, one of the other ones was um, on one very difficult project recently. A lot of people were failing the test to get into mm -hmm. the project. And I was like, you know, it seemed, I was asking them, it seems to be a confidence issue. So I said, look, okay. What about one of the people who passed the test, if they just um, go online for a couple of hours and just as they're working on the project normally, just video record themselves and talk to themselves, explain what they're doing, and then anyone else can log on to that and just watch them work for a couple of hours and know that another person with a disability has worked out how to do it and just watch the other person working and then give it another try themselves. Um, so, you know, I, you're always just trying to think of new ways to crack this, and it's, it's a, a very novel HR challenge, but it's really kind of, these days it's data-driven. So I can have ideas, I can have a guess of what mm -hmm. I think will work, but mm -hmm. at the end of the day now, we have the ability to data-drive it. So. You can see across a bigger and bigger database all the time as we expand mm. what has worked and then do more of it. Mm. What is the one of the biggest rewards in building a neighbor code for you? Um, I mean, the main thing is to, to see the beneficiaries, to see you know, people's lives changed because of it. Mm -hmm. um, so, you know, it's, a, it's often, you know, individual stories, you know, mm -hmm. where you see someone who's never been able to work before, mm -hmm. going straight into an AI project and getting their first ever pay, you know. And they're often, you know, you see them on Facebook or something like that and how delighted they are and telling their family, you know, and I can tell them, you know, they actually really earned that money. You know, that mm -hmm. client in America will now mm -hmm. be able to do something more easily because of that work that wasn't charity that was you know they had a purpose um, that they did something genuinely that was of value to other people so yes of course the money is very valuable to them mm -hmm. but it's also the purpose that they get 
Um, so that's, that's the objective, the social objective and the reward as well, seeing that work. I see. I see that you experience a lot, experiment a lot of different HR methods into this, and I'm and and certainly you can see a bigger impact, especially working with people with disabilities. There are many challenge, especially uh, in their mental state, that you can experience, like you said, um, like the mirroring, seeing someone else doing the work, and then you can and then they get more confidence that they can do the same thing. That's a lot of great strategy that you're doing right now. Um, congratulations on that. <laughs> yes. And you are, oh, so I want to ask more about HR in general, as you also the chairman and founder of Vietnam HR Association and Vietnam Business Forum HR Group. So could you share more with me about the current stage of HR in Vietnam? Yeah, so, um Having been here a long time in Vietnam and being, let's say, non-Vietnamese, obviously, as an outsider looking in at the Vietnamese culture, um, there's a better story here than most Vietnamese suspect. Um, so when I, I'm also a judge of the uh, Vietnam HR Awards, so I see the very best of the big multinational companies or the best Vietnamese companies, how they manage uh, staff in Vietnam. Mm. And there are a number of household name companies who have the best performing branches in the world here in Vietnam. Yeah. So the performance of the best Vietnamese is literally the best in the world. Wow. Um, and so literally you've got these big multinational companies flying in teams from America, from Europe, from Japan, trying to find out how the best performance in the world is coming out of Vietnam. Um, and I told the government this, I said, look, okay, Vietnam actually has this potential. This could be one of the most successful countries in the world based on how good the Vietnamese people are. And um, a lot of people don't believe me on this one, you know, but I'm seeing this. I, I saw this from the beginning, 20-something years ago. Mm. Um, and it is quite possible. And to understand that, you've got to look at what the Vietnamese character and culture is and how that impacts into a business setting. So mm. I see there's three different levels of the Vietnamese character. Mm. So the foundation of the Vietnamese character is East Asia. So a Vietnamese person will have more in common in terms of work ethic and things like that with someone from Korea or Japan than mm. they would with someone from, let's say, Thailand or Myanmar. Um, um, and so that gives the Vietnamese this great uh, um, work ethic, drive, discipline, um, uh, intelligence. There's a number of things that come with that. Yes. Um, but if you speak to a lot of people from the other East Asian countries, um, the first thing they do is they're always stressed out. They're always complaining about each other. Um, but what Vietnam was very fortunate, it got a lot of Southeast Asian influences as well, and got the mm. best bits of that. So mm. that the Southeast Asian part of the Vietnamese character is a great kind of friendliness and teamwork. So what you've got then is these massively high-performing driven individuals who can work together. Mm. 
And working in Vietnam, you know, Europeans, we're, we're surprised as well, you know, at how friendly and nice everything is in an office environment here in Vietnam. Yes. So you've got that. And then as the third level, right at the top, you've got this unique Vietnamese characters of um, a lot of this kind of um, cheeky, resilient, uh, innovative, creative, um, problem solving. So this is a very unique Vietnamese thing. That's actually a very modern skill that's needed. Um, so very often, you know, the Vietnamese will just find a solution to something. Um, and uh, so you combine all those three together and you've got the best combination in the world. Mm. So if you look at, let's say, the pandemic at the moment, why did Vietnam have a better outcome than almost anyone else in the world? It was that combination of the three things. So the people um, were all very dedicated to being in a communal society, collectivist society to care for each other. Plus then they did that in a very nice way. Mm. Plus they were adaptive. So the Vietnamese economy could sidestep and adjust very quickly. If the mm. job moved online, they could do it way quicker than anyone else because they're used mm. to being flexible and adaptive. So Vietnam has this enormous potential if we can get the whole country up to that level, this really will be one of the richest countries in the world. And I do believe that is the future. Um, mm. It's a much better story. Often the Vietnamese do themselves down. And yes, this country has had a, a challenging history and it had recent poverty, but the people themselves are very capable as a culture mm. and individually. So mm. yes, I mean, Vietnam has, had the you know the highest level of wealth creation in the world for the last 20 years will mm. do for the next 20 years and they deserve it mm. um, so when i'm advising the vietnam government on their human resource policies mm. the first thing i have to say to you is congratulations you know you don't um be the best performer in the world by accident <laughs> uh, so yes yeah, so there's an unexpectedly good story there about vietnam mm -hmm. Then for an employer, then how is, what is the best way to manage such cultural workforce? Um, it's certainly put things in the local perspective, um, because whenever, especially as a foreign investor, so the Vietnam Business Forum is largely representing foreign investors. And it's obviously, this applies anywhere, but it's understanding the host culture. So, you know, kind of understanding what makes the Vietnamese tick, you know, yeah. <laughs> and appreciate what's good there, but also adjust your management style to those different cult cultural characteristics. So, for example, in England, when I was managing in HR, very large teams of English people, you give them a policy and the first thing they do is say, why? You give a Vietnamese person a policy and they appreciate it and say, well, can I have another one, please? So an English person would hesitate to set rules, mm. whereas that's actually culturally accepted here. Mm. So it's, it's understanding, you know, uh, what Vietnamese like. And obviously the simplest advice to a foreigner is, you know, just talk to your Vietnamese staff mm -hmm. about what they want, what they appreciate mm -hmm. and what works. Because, um, you know, in Vietnam, a lot does work. And as a foreigner, you've got to question, why does it work? It doesn't mm. work in the same way it does in England. Well, mm. yeah, of course. But understand why it works and use mm -hmm. that. Mm -hmm. um, so it's, it's really adapting to these 
natural strengths of Vietnam. Mm-hmm. Um, and we also see this now, um, you know, where Vietnam had been a place for low cost in the past. Mm-hmm. But now you've got some of the best technology research in the world, especially in artificial intelligence, being done here in Vietnam, not for cost, but because it's simply better. I know mm-hmm. companies that have closed research centers in Europe and America or Japan and moved mm-hmm. them here to Vietnam simply because the Vietnamese could produce better results. Mm-hmm. That's great. Um, then what are the common mistakes that foreign companies should avoid when managing uh, Vietnamese workforce? Um, yeah, I mean, the, the first mistake yeah, is this cultural one. Um, and that, that's the main one, really. Um, so mm-hmm. if you try and just take the, um, the playbook, the standard way you do things in other countries, and just blindly impose it on a a country workforce. It's never really going to work. So if you look at the most successful multinational companies in Vietnam, they've adjusted. They've worked out, okay, this is what we do well, and this is what would work well in Vietnam. So um, they worked out, you know, similar challenges to what I have, is how do you explain it in a way that is culturally understandable? Um, So when I'm trying to I know the answer to something, but how can I get a person with disability in Vietnam to understand what I understand? So I've got to experiment with loads of different ways or just otherwise ask some Vietnamese friends like, okay, how does this sound to you? How would you explain it? You know, just also listen and adjust. And that's the thing with working with the, you know, transformation and technology these days. It's all about adaptability and adjusting. Mm -hmm. So when you're working with people across cultures, that's adjusting. When you're working with technology transformation, that's adjusting. And when you put both of those together, it's an awful lot of adjusting. So it's, you know, keep an open mind. Yes, absolutely. Especially during this time where a lot of things have been changing for the past few months, then yeah, yes. any business are, should be open mind and should ready to adapt to a new environment. Then what would your advice for how HR can best respond to like the pandemic? Yeah, so, well, for the pandemic, um, it's suddenly accelerated a lot of changes that were happening anyway. So, um, you know, we all switched to things like Zoom in the pandemic. Um, and the technology wasn't the restraining factor. The technology worked fine. It was there and it was capable and it could have done it years ago. Yes. But it was our behavior. You know, we were just sticking to routines like coming to an office just because well, that's the way it was. Mm-hmm. So this has suddenly been accelerated forward. So the companies that will survive this and even do well out of this are the ones that understand this isn't just a temporary pause and back to normal. This is a fundamental shift mm-hmm. and a very strong reminder to everyone to do that digital transformation and embrace these you know, 21st mm-hmm. century skills that they should have done in the first place. But it's now just accelerated in a much more risky environment. Um, And HR shouldn't just be, I mean, HR when it's done badly is just a administration function. And administration is best done by computers. Um, If it's routine and just, you know, paper processing, let the computer do that. And I've been in HR for many years 
And a lot of my old job when I was in Europe used to be stuff that's now done by a computer. And it's fine, that's, that was the boring stuff, the computer's welcome to it. Um, but a lot of um, HR people who've only known that, um, they get very defensive. They say, oh, the computer's taking away all my work. You know, if I can't stamp a stack of paper, what am I gonna do? And my advice always to HR people, is I say to them, why did you go into HR in the first place? And they say, oh, because I'm a people person. I say, well, that's great, that's, that's the right answer. So why does your job look like an accountant at the moment? You're not that mm. person. Um, it's all process and numbers and, you know. I'm saying, this is your chance to be the person you always wanted to be, to have the job you always wanted. Don't, you know, try and fight to keep hold of the stuff that the computer can do but much better than you. Yes. Actually add value. So, you know, when the companies now have the challenge of the questions like how do you motivate a remote workforce? How do you adjust uh, jobs uh, to the pandemic? HR should be the one knocking on the CEO's door saying, look, I've got some ideas and answers, rather than kind of sitting there in a corner waiting to be fired. Um, so there are some HR departments here. I mean, when I do the um, Vietnam HR Awards, there are some outstanding HR talent here in Vietnam. But also, on the flip side of it, you do see uh, a lot of people who are just still stuck in the very old um, administration mindset. Yes. Um, and I would encourage them, you know, don't be threatened by change. Um, modern HR is actually quite good fun. It's quite interesting. You know, why not do something interesting? You yes. know, it isn't just a food set. It's actually, you know, helping other people, um, doing these human things. So mm -hmm. HR can be, in modern context, a lot more than it often is. Um, and if someone, unfortunately, has got into a rut of just doing paperwork, it's difficult to get them out of it. And if a company's looking to cut costs and they say, okay, who's critical in a workforce? HR is often the first to get the chop if they're just administration because they're like, okay, you know, just, just give that to the ERP system on your, you know, it's no longer needed. Yes, um, and I absolutely agree with you because HR, um, yeah, the, the more, the, if there are a lot of technology, we're living in a world where there's a lot of technologies are replacing and helping and doing better jobs, but there's one thing that technology couldn't do better than us is the human part. So HR would be a very valuable role in helping the companies to build the culture that is not just technology or it's not just, just work. Yeah, so it's, um, it's teaching people, it's teaching humans to be humans. Mm -hmm. So the education system, you know, scores very good results in Vietnam. It's got a very strong education system in terms of numeracy and things like that. But what is now required in uh, now the Vietnamese economy is moving up to the next level and with technology is these human skills. So the education system, and it's not just Vietnam, this is all countries are facing this challenge. The education system teaches people to be computers. But now computers are far better at being computers than they'll ever be. You know, if you try and race your laptop, who can calculate things, something fastest? Of course, the laptop will win, or who can remember the most things? Whereas the school system is still teaching people to remember things and calculate things. Yeah. So yes. um, what is now needed is someone who has, you know, the empathy, for example. So they understand what the computer can do know to ask the right question and understand the answer. Mm 
it's not doing the calculation. So these are human skills. And these are also childhood development skills. So people who have learned them can't remember learning them, so they have a great deal of difficulty teaching them. Um, and people who haven't learned them and have got adulthood without understanding it, it's incredibly difficult psychologically to then develop these human skills. Mm. Um, and all the research work that's been done in Washington by the World Bank or New York by the, the uh, United Nations, the, the upshot of all of it is, yes, the answer is very difficult and they don't know exactly what it is. <laughs> so again, it's about experimenting. Um, yeah. How can you explain to people how to be human? Mm. Uh, I think that's now that's the challenging part and a very exciting phase we're uh, heading to. And, uh, yes. Mm -hmm. yeah, I mean, yes. the, the world is headed in this direction and it's very uncharted territory and the pandemic's made it even more so. But the thing is, you know, to be a little bit brave, try and get ahead of the issue and um, try and develop these human skills um, in people. And there's enough work. It's a, these aren't soft skills, these are survival skills. Um, you have them, you can do a job and you can earn some money. You don't have mm -hmm. to be relevant. Um, and in making that something that's actionable for companies and individuals, that's HR. Mm -hmm. So HR could actually jump to the forefront of being useful in this whole thing. And some of them do. Unfortunately, a lot still haven't quite worked it out yet. <laughs> yes. And I would, I think that will, uh, that is some food for thought for the audience out there. So we can discuss, we can think about the challenge ahead for HR or as for our society and as a whole. And I think that's a great uh, recap for our episodes. Thank you for joining us today. And for the audience, if they want to reach out to you or they could find more of your work, where can they find you? Um, just on our website, um, enablecode.vn. Um, just have a look for us there and you'll see a bit more examples. Um, and also we're often, you know, publishing ideas down social media channels and so on. Uh, um, Where can they find and, your uh, publishing? Um, I'm putting on LinkedIn and Facebook and things like that. Um, and uh, just sharing ideas as I have them because the idea with social enterprise is, you know, you don't keep the idea to yourself. You're not competing in the way an old company does. Mm -hmm. If you can help, then you share the information that's going to help people. Yes, absolutely. So for the audience, again, Enable Code is E-N-A-B-L-E-C-O-D-E dot V-N. Find more about their work on the website, as well as Colin Blackwell, uh, publish, uh, personal publishing on LinkedIn, social, uh, Facebook, or somewhere else. Uh, those are the main two I use. Oh, I see. All right. As, uh, yes. So remember, Colin Blackwell and Enable Code. Thank you for joining with me today for the podcast. I hope you have a wonderful time as, as I do. And thank you for the audience for tuning in for this episode. Bye. Thank you. All right, bye. Bye-bye. <laughs>